Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant from his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him, have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at the, this time next year. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were but born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The word of the Lord. When I was in high school, I raced uh, canoes and kayaks. And one of the races, uh, the canoe racing, the kind that I participated in was was referred to as endurance racing, and they were long races. There's one race that's relatively famous in the, the canoeing world, which starts in upstate New York on the beginning of the Susquehanna River, and it runs 70 miles. Uh, so it's a very long day. The race takes roughly 9 or 10 hours, depending on how fast you are. But at the start of the race, uh, it's early because it's such a long race. And you begin to gather, and when you gather, it's dark out. It's that early because the gun goes, or it's actually a cannon. The cannon goes off at 6 a.m. Now, the tricky part about the race is you, you paddle out on a lake about half a mile to a mile where the starting line is. But what you're doing after the cannon goes off is all headed for the beginning of the Susquehanna River. Now, the Susquehanna River, when it empties into the Atlantic near D.C., is almost a mile wide. But where it starts, 
coming out of this, this relatively small lake in upstate New York, it isn't much bigger than a stream. And so you can imagine that about half a mile to a mile out in the lake, you have probably a hundred boats. And when that cannon goes off, all those hundred boats are trying to fit into the very tiny opening of what is the course of the race. And it was very much a funnel. And if you don't find yourself in the first grouping of boats to enter that, you get bottlenecked. And it will severely affect the rest of your race. You'll find yourself spending so much time waiting to get into the river uh, that you you may not even be able to make it up during the course of the day. Now, what's really fun is on most, most years that I participated, um, at 6 a.m., you go out on the lake and you realize that it's very, very foggy. And you go out and you f- somehow find these boats that have the starting line out in the lake and then you start to turn around and try to orient yourself, orient yourself and your boat toward where you're supposed to head, and you have no idea. You can't see but 20 feet in the distance. And so there are a number of years where boats go in all kinds of directions, and really their day is ruined at the very outset because it's taken them so long to get to the beginning. But imagine this scene where you're, you're in a boat and you know you're kind of supposed to head in a certain direction, but all you're doing is gazing into a, an enormous uh, bay of fog. What, which direction do you head, and, and how do you know that the steps that you're taking in a certain direction are the right steps to be taking? This is a picture of, of what it must have been like, to some extent, to be Abraham. right? To, to be called by this foreign god and to be asked to move in a certain direction, not knowing... Where that direction was, Scripture tells us, not knowing the outcome, but to begin to place one foot in front of another in a certain uh, walk of faith, a journey of belief that this God will prove truthful, that He will prove faithful to His promises and will lead in the right direction. There are at least uh, two aspects to Abraham's call, and it's really these two aspects that I'd like to focus on I think it would do us well to consider and to weigh this morning. The first aspect is that Abraham is called to, to give up everything he knows, to separate from his town, his home, his family, uh, a big deal in the ancient world, which family is essentially your entire security system. And the second thing about his call is that he's asked to move in a certain direction, not just to separate, right, to give up what he knows, but then also to move in a certain direction that he's called to by faith. This is very similar to the call that we receive. God reaches out to Abraham and and calls him out of his darkness and reveals himself to him, and God has, has reached down to you, and he's called you out of darkness. He's revealed himself to you. And Abraham is challenged to leave, to separate from what he knows, And you have been challenged to separate from what you know. Your citizenship is not in this world. You are to be in this world, but not of this world. Then God challenges Abraham to move in a certain direction, as you are called to move in a certain direction, a journey of faith, by which you take steps, and you do not know the outcome. You do not know necessarily even what lies around the next bend. And yet you are called to move in a certain direction. So what can we learn this morning 
from Abraham. After all, he makes the hall of faith. Is there something that he has to teach us about answering our call and moving after God in an effective way? In verse 8, Abraham is called and it says that he went out. Remarkably, for God to, to move his story forward, what he's doing is reaching out to a pagan. The Bible tells us that when Abraham was called, he was worshiping other gods. He has no idea who Yahweh is. Now, Yahweh says, that's okay. This is my man. I'm going to invest in him. I'm going to pull him in a certain direction. And that invitation changes everything that Abraham knows. In fact, it changes everything that he values. As we kind of uh, we, we foreshadowed a little bit in the children's lesson this morning, when God comes to Abraham, Abraham is faced with a decision of what he will value. Will he value this bold promise from Yahweh? Or will he value what he knows? Will he cling to what's comfortable? Or will he be willing to risk it all? Of course, we know that Abraham makes that decision to risk it all, but his very life reminds us of the importance and challenges us to value things that are valuable. Abraham decides that everything that he knows is not as valuable as the promise of Yahweh. And so he hitches his his wagon, so to speak, to those promises. The challenge of valuing things correctly is no small challenge. Right? Think for a minute about your life. How many things have you valued poorly? How many decisions do you wish that you, if you could go back, you would you take back? You'd go in a different direction. Just think about the people you dated. Surely in there somewhere, there's someone you think, why did I value that person? That wasn't a very good decision. We could use a very simple example, which is, you know, would you prefer to own Florida or the Arctic Circle? Straightforward thing to value, you might think. You may not know, but there is a, a, a staggering race on for the rights to the Arctic Circle. Because the melting of the ice cap, for whatever reason it's happening, is irrelevant to this point. The fact is that it is melting and that it new access to what lies under the Arctic ice cap is becoming available and increasingly available. And what lies under that ice cap is 13% of the world's undiscovered oil, approximately 90 billion barrels, as well as 30% of its natural gas, worth an estimated $17.2 trillion dollars an amount roughly equivalent to the entire U.S. economy, these resources have been trapped under a dome of snow and ice, but are now being liberated. And now, you may not be aware, are being viciously contested between the five nations, one of them being us, that border and claim some rights to the Arctic Circle. Now, what did you think just a minute ago? Florida or the Arctic Circle? Right? You envision yourself on the beach. But if you had chosen the Arctic Circle, you could buy dozens of Floridas, right? It's difficult to know how to value something appropriately in our lives. And we can move from something that is a simple example to 
one that are more practical to our lives. I can say, I value my health. I value uh, respecting my body and making decisions that increase my longevity and my service to God. And then there comes a moment where even though I say I value that, I also say that I value the cold stone, old-fashioned brownie sundae. And that becomes more important to me in the moment, and it seems to compromise what I've said I just value previously. You know this all too well. We could get more serious. We could talk about valuing a, a glass of wine to a spouse or to a child, valuing our own time and energy at the expense of being a true friend, valuing ourselves at the expense of knowing God, And as one Christian writer puts it, our biggest problem is that we are intent on trying to find ourselves rather than on trying to find God. There's no surer way to not find God than to invest most of your time and energy in finding yourself. So how then do we be, we become like Abraham? With all the things that are being communicated to you today as being valuable, How do you then rightly decide what is valuable and decide consistently for what that value is? Let me say two things in answering that question. Number one, some of you don't really know what I'm talking about. When I talk about the frustration of seeking God and valuing the right thing, you say, yes, I I struggle with that. I want to know God better. I pursue Him, but I find myself all the time valuing the wrong thing. But there's some of you, it it just doesn't connect. And you think, well, that's kind of odd. I I don't know. God is as near as God is. And and out out of love, really, you need to be challenged with Hebrews 11.6, which is, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever could draw near to God must believe that He exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, if you don't know the frustration of being thwarted in seeking God, right? if you don't know this, this notion of, I, I pursue him and he's hard to find, or I try to value what he values and it becomes difficult, well, that really means that you're not seeking him. And if you're not seeking him, that probably means that you don't really believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Because if you believe that, then you would seek him. Who wouldn't want to be rewarded by God? And if you don't believe that he's worth seeking because you don't believe he's a rewarder of those who seek him, then you don't actually have real faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So if this isn't connecting quite with you, one of the questions that you need to ask is, is my faith real? Or do I pretend and buy into a very common narrative culturally, which everyone says they have faith? I can't tell you the number of people I meet each week in Rockwell who say, yes, I'm a Christian, and and I haven't thought about God in six months, and I don't go to church. And really, what is the nature of your faith? What is the nature of seeking God? Do you believe that he rewards those who seek him? It doesn't seem so. And if it doesn't seem so, then what are we talking about when we talk about faith? But for those of you who understand full well what this angst and struggle is like, then you know that there is challenge in it, but there's also great reward in valuing the right thing and in pursuing that thing. I was 
I was impressed by an image, an illustration of faith this week. I watched the movie Amazing Grace, which is the story of William Wilberforce, who, whose story is amazing. Uh, Wilberforce was born in the mid-1700s into a family of wealth. He was born into privilege. Once his grandfather died, he never would have to work a day in his life. He had so much money. He went into a life of politics, which was easy, because in that day in England, you typically bought your way into politics, which is exactly what he did. So he's set. Gets to go and argue at Parliament. He doesn't need to really work. He has a very comfortable life. And in the midst of that, God reaches down and grabs him and wakes him up and says, Come, I'm calling you. Follow me. And Wilberforce has to say, My goodness, what does this mean for me? Where do I go? How do I follow in faith? Do I give up politics? In the midst of this, he ultimately decides to stay in politics, but begins to ask, what does it mean to walk down this path that I've been called to? It's not clear. I don't see the destination, but what does it mean for to value the right things and to seek him in the midst of this calling? And he becomes probably the fiercest single figure, although it certainly took a team to accomplish this, committed to the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Now, Wilberforce will start fighting for the abolition of slavery around 1787. The abolition of slavery will not officially happen in England until 1833. He will die very shortly before the bill is actually passed. Which means that Wilberforce, at great expense to his purse, and at great expense to his character, at least societally, and at great expense to his physical health, labors for some 40 years to see the abolition of slavery. And he dies not seeing the fulfillment of that promise. He knows it is coming, but he does not get to see it enacted. What does Wilberforce teach us about the nature of faith? He writes, A private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. A faith that does not act is, is no faith at all. Is that not the message of Hebrews 11, which over and over again are the heroes of faith and they're held out to us not for the theology that they mastered, not for the confession that they spoke, over and over again they're held out to us for what they did, for the actions they took based upon the promises of God. And so surely one of the lessons we must take as Abraham separates and moves out is that if we're serious about our faith, it calls upon us to act, to do. Wilberforce points out to us that this entire endeavor is not something that should be simply private. It's something that's public. And he writes, I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. The advance or decline of faith is so intimately connected to the welfare of a society that should it be that it should be of particular interest to a politician of course that was his field but wilberforce is arguing that faith is something that informs what everyone does in the public sphere how could we make faith simply a private thing Isn't that funny you know there's there's probably nothing that i can think of that we talk least about 
than our faith. And by that I mean this. It's not that we're reluctant to talk about God. And it's not that we're reluctant to talk about theology. But it's somewhat more rare for me to hear people sit down and say, I, I struggle to believe or I, I can't figure out what God is calling me to in this. What joy would it bring me to hear someone say something like, to sit down with a group of people and say, you know what, I got a big tax return this year. I don't know what it means in faith to use that tax return. I know what I want to do. I want to buy a boat. But I don't think that's what God really necessarily intends for me to do with it. So, But I need you all to, to join me in this, to speak into it with me, to to press toward what, to sharpen me, and for me to sharpen you, what does it mean to act with faith in the midst of that blessing? And that faith is not something that is a private affair, but something that we discuss, we labor at together. The question at hand is, you know, how, we're still wrestling with the question of how do we value the right thing appropriately? How do we seek that and not be swayed by things that are of lesser value or things that we might ascribe the wrong value to? And we've said two things so far, that it requires action. You actually have to be moving in a certain direction to be enacting faith. And we've said that it helps to talk about it, that this isn't a quiet, private affair. I would I would suggest to you this morning that the same way the alcoholic doesn't like to talk about their drinking, because they don't want the size of the problem to be disclosed. We don't like to talk about our faith because we don't want the smallness of our faith to be disclosed. What would happen if we became a community to dare to talk about faith with the hope that it would be enlarged, both for you and for the person listening? And asking this question, How do we value the right thing appropriately? I'm afraid a little bit that you might hear in your own mind that, oh, our heart really has to get to loving the right thing appropriately before we act. And really what I'm trying to do is to suggest to you almost the opposite. I think that is the intent of not only the story of Abraham, but all of Hebrews 11, is that uh, we don't wait for our heart to be we think to ourselves, okay, my heart now values the right thing. Now I can do some act of faith and aspire to be a Hebrews 11 character. Now what I'm suggesting to you is act on your faith. Talk to people, be challenged, and then take a step of faith. And then that's when you may start your heart actually landing in the right spot. You can't will your heart to be in the right spot. Only by acting and stepping out of faith will God help your heart to actually get to that right place and to grow in wisdom in valuing the right thing. You can all think of someone in your life, someone in this church, who you look at and you say, they're valuing the right thing over and over again, ten times for every one time I value the right thing. What is true of them? What makes them different? And I guarantee that one of the things that makes them different is they didn't wait, but they acted. And in the steps of faith they've engaged in their life, Their heart has grown and their wisdom has grown as God has brought them near. So how should you move? 
Well, for goodness sake, move away from the wrong things that you love and value. Do you value your success more than anything? Is that what you think about? Is that what you dream about? Then maybe by faith you you give up the next promotion simply as an act of moving toward God. If you value your time the most, then perhaps by faith you need to invite someone over into your time, your most precious time, so that it's interrupted and you begin to give that up. If you value your wealth the most, then perhaps you need to be radically generous. If you value your pleasure more than anything, then make a commitment to do something entirely unpleasant. Understand the big picture that lies behind this this application, this challenge to you. If, If you do not see the need or understand the call to put your life to death, what you are attached to, then you do not need life from Jesus. If you are not ready to bleed, if you are not ready to meet your cross, then what what does Jesus have to offer you? Why do you even go through the motions? If you know best how to pursue your life, then you don't need life from Jesus. What decision did Abraham make at that moment? I'm not sure who Yahweh is, but I believe that he's got a better idea of life for me than I have for myself. Let's move. And in that act of faith, he becomes a legend of faith. He becomes changed and remade. And the other part of that faith in verse 8 is that as he separates and is called out, he does not know where he is going. He wanders. He moves around the land of Canaan. And from God's perspective, Abraham is marking out the promised land where the people of God will eventually dwell. But from Abraham's perspective, he dwells in tents. And so will Isaac and Jacob. He signed up for this great inheritance. How great was it? I'm a nomad in the desert and I get one kid. He dies before he sees the real fulfillment of that promise. But he walks out on faith. And his wandering is not all... You know, we look at the the story, the chapter, Hebrews 11, and this hall of faith, and sometimes it can be crushing because we look at these stories of faith and say, how could we aspire to this? You know, as Abraham's wandering in the desert... He passes his wife off as a sister because he's afraid he'll be attacked for her. And not believing that God will come through on the promise of a child, he and his wife decide to try to hatch a plan by which the promise will be given to Ishmael rather than to Isaac. It isn't a picture of perfect faithfulness. It isn't a picture of not making mistakes, but it is a picture of a man who keeps trying to re orients himself by the right bearings, the bearings of God's promise for his future. You see, Abraham is faithful because he believes that what God has promised is going to come, and he keeps his gaze on the future, on where that's headed. And woe to us, it is death to us to not move in that direction, to not consistently be oriented by the city that is built by the living God rather than by the cities that are around us to be tricked and being distracted 
by the toys of this age rather than to remember that there is a place that we are going to, the architect and builder of whom is the living God. What is the difference? Well, we could say, I don't really believe that there is any promises coming to bear. I'm simply going to to decide how to move through life on my own. There's a man in Britain who has moved through several religions over the years. He, He was a Buddhist, and then he started following an Egyptian religion, and none of these seeming quite satisfying and being very moved by the Star Wars franchise, he decided that he would become a living Jedi. And so he fashions his own Jedi wardrobe and walks around Britain with a lightsaber. And surprisingly, his girlfriend of six years departed from him, deciding that there was no future to be had here. But he says, listen, there is no bearing. There is no future that informs my presence, so I will decide how to make my way in this world. I like being a Jedi. Kids love me. Everybody wants to take their picture with me. And that's how I'm going to go through life. That's a comical picture of of how we might put a hopeless picture of how we might make our way. And we do. We laugh at the Jedi man, right? But how often do we wake up and engage a day and we, we make no reference to the city that is to come. We do not think of the future. It does not inform our present. And we have simply opted for something equally as empty, equally as, as unfulfilling, equally as pointless as adhering to a Jedi, a made-up fictional religion as we pursue our own interests. I read the sad story of a, a very gifted young lady who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Ivy League student, standout um, Stand, a standout girl academically. She uh, had full-ride scholarships both in soccer and in track. She was beautiful, and she uh, was desperately sad. And she started to, to um, she looked at her friends, and she, as her friends separated and went to different colleges, she felt lonely, and she started to look at all their lives portrayed on Facebook and Instagram. And she, she had this conversation with her mother and said, you know what? This is all illusion. I know these people and they're sad and they're hurting and this is all a facade. And in her sadness, she decided that life was nothing more than a facade. And she took a running leap off a nine-story parking garage in her freshman year. How incredibly sad, but is that a completely irrational conclusion if there is no God? If there is no God who informs a future, and gives us a city that is to come, one that we cannot possibly build, then frankly, that's not that bad a decision. But Abraham shows us a track in which there is faith in the God who provides us a city. You know, I told you about the canoe regatta at the beginning of the sermon, but I didn't tell you about the secret. So you get out there in the bank of fog, and you're at, I shouldn't even tell you this, but when you're out there in the bank of fog, you act, you're, at, you're talking to everybody and you're like, yeah, I think it's that way. When you, but you never point in the direction you really think it is. And so, so at the start of some races, people actually, if you can't, you can't, one year it was, the fog was so dense, you could maybe see five boats and you couldn't see the actual motor boats that were out marking the start of the race. So some people actually started racing in the opposite direction of the race and had to eventually turn around. <clears throat> but you're out there. So the trick is to, uh, is to be quiet. 
The trick is to listen because there's a big crowd on the bank and when the cannon goes off, they start to cheer. And if you can keep focused on that and head in the direction of the sound, you're going to find the mouth of the river. Right? That's how Hebrews 11 works to a degree. So there's a great cloud of witnesses that have come before us and they're all shouting, right? Abel is, Noah is, Abraham is. And they're shouting, keep running in the right direction because it's worth it. We've made it to the other side. We've made it to the city. Right? Keep pressing forward. Abraham keeps pressing forward and receives a child at the age of 100 out of a body that is as good as dead. He receives the child through whom the Messiah would come. Listen to those voices and keep pressing forward because God's faithfulness will surprise you with the miraculous things He will do in your midst Nothing of which is more miraculous than him drawing into you into more of himself. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the stories that you have laid out before us. We rejoice in the faith that is exhibited by those who have come before. My goodness, we ask that you would grace us with faith. That your spirit would be upon us. And that you would help us to not overvalue the things of this world, but instead to value the things of your city and your kingdom. We pray that you would make us not afraid to separate from the things that we cling to here and make us bold to walk into that path of faith that is not known, the destination is not seen, but by your promise it does not disappoint. Lead us down this path for our good and your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.